you have your Bibles, open them up to Mark chapter 3. I believe when church is done correctly, when the community of church is done biblically, it forms this community unlike any other community in the world. And I know I'm biased, I'm a pastor, I get that. But I really think, I think that's absolutely true. And for that, let me tell you the story of a, a lady that's gone on to be with the Lord. Her name's Miss Patsy Douglas. Miss Patsy Douglas was uh, one of the long-term members of First Baptist Socorro when I first started there. Uh, when I first started in Socorro, she was like 88 years old. She was only like four foot nine, four foot ten, um, just kind of short, sweet, older lady. She carried oxygen around with her. Um, she had had a previous stroke uh, a couple years prior, so she was kind of slow to talk. Um, and so uh, I just remember coming into church, and every Sunday morning, her being one of the first people that would come up and give me a hug and talk about how grateful she was that I was there and uh, just having such a great time with it. Now, I'll never forget, one, one evening, Haley and I went out to eat with one of our deacons and his wife. And uh, his wife was talking, and she made some sort of comment on the side of just, eh, Miss Pat's mad at me again. And I thought, sweet little old Miss Pat is mad? No, she can't be mad at you. Like, something else must have happened. And she gave me that look that says, you're 23 and don't know anything, which is fair, you know. <laughs> like, you're going to learn. Just wait. I remember thinking, that's, that's ridiculous, like there's not a chance. Miss Pat is wonderful and sweet and kind and gives me hugs. And so as, as time went on, uh, Miss Pat and I developed this kind of code language where she would call the church office, usually once a month or so, and she would say, I baked some chocolate bread, which was code from Miss Pat to say, come visit me. That was, that was her code to say, come visit, I baked some chocolate bread. And so I learned this code pretty quickly, and so I would, okay, Miss Pat, let me get some things done, and I'll be over your house. And I would go over, and we would sit down, and we would eat chocolate bread, and we would talk, and we'd, I would pray for her and leave. And things uh, generally went really well. Um, I would think, man, this, this woman, how can she be mean to anyone? She is so, so kind um, until, you know, this story was taken an until. And don't worry, she is in heaven laughing at this right now. I absolutely believe that. One, one October... My family was flying in for Balloon Fiesta in Albuquerque, and it just so happened that the Saturday morning uh, event that we were going to go to with Balloon Fiesta overlapped with the Mountain Baptist Association annual meeting, the so association that Miss Pat had been treasurer of for like 40 years. I didn't think much about it. You know, I told my deacons a couple months prior, hey guys, my, my parents are coming in for Balloon Fiesta, so I'm not going to be able to make it to the annual associational meeting, but we have plenty of you guys going to it, so I think that's okay. And they said, yeah, that's fine, don't worry about it. I didn't think a thing about it. I moved on with my life. And then Miss Pat called one day. And she did not say I baked some chocolate bread. It was something else along the lines of, you're supposed to be the pastor of this church. You need to get your priorities in line. This is a big deal. I can't believe you'd think about not showing up to this meeting and just was laying into me over the phone. And I don't know if you've ever been on the other line when someone is just chewing you out and you're trying your best. Well, Miss, if I can, and then all of a sudden she just like hangs up on me. And I was like, dude, I'm, I'm about to get fired. Like, she's going to call my deacon leadership. She has been in this church longer than my mom's been alive. Like, she, 
she's going to go to my head deacon. And so I'm like scrambling. I'm calling my head deacon and saying, hey, you're probably going to get a call. I, don't, I didn't think it was a big deal. Now I'm curious. And he says, you know what, Philip, don't, don't worry about it. It'll be okay. And I was just thinking, I was thinking about that story. Because I think in some ways, that story is kind of our fear of, of church community in, in a way. That things will go well, and then suddenly everything will just blow up, and we'll, we'll keep ourselves from that type of pain or conflict if we just don't play that game. If we don't make those types of relationships. So what we do in reaction is we retreat into this kind of like pseudo-community of church, uh, where, where we'll show up once, uh, once or twice a month, maybe, and, uh, but don't ask me to do much beyond that because, listen, I love you guys, but I don't want those types of phone conversations, so I'm going to play church back here and not worry about that. And I, I think, really, what that is is that's just a symptom of a larger problem in our culture because if I could just be honest with you, like, we stink at community. And I don't mean that like First Baptist Portalis. I mean that in just like a larger scale, the modern Western American society. We're just not good at community. We, we've talked about this before, but you can probably tell me. Since the 1950s, what has happened to church attendance? We're on this steady decline since, since the 1950s. Uh, and, and honestly, things look pretty bleak. Um, and, and I know that's not what you like, really want to hear from a pulpit on a Sunday morning. But on the other side of that, if I could just be honest with you, uh, there was a guy who was a teacher at Harvard. His name was Robert Putnam, or is Robert Putnam. He wrote a book, and this was back in 2000, called Bowling Alone. And the premise of this book uh, was that it's not just church attendance that's dwindling. It's any and all forms of community that require any type of commitment. And that's true from church to Rotary Club to bowling leagues, right? I know we live in Portales. There is a bowling lane opening in Portales soon, so any of you guys plan on joining a bowling league? All right, we got like two people. That's, let's do it. Be committed to your bowling league, right? Wait, we don't commit to things anymore. So like being committed to a bowling league is something that's dwindled. There are no bowling leagues anymore for the most part. And so his, his assumption was, or his presumption from this is that, hey, we have started to shy away from commitment requiring communities, and we're okay to do pseudo things, we're okay to do surface level things, but anything that's going to require me to commit my time, my effort, my resources, that's just not okay because, like, what if something better comes along? And here's the thing, guys, like, you, you may know this already, there is going to be something better come along Sunday mornings than First Baptist Church at Portales. And a lot of times that's you stayed up too late Saturday night and that bed is really hard to escape, right? There's something better that always comes along. And if we're not in that committed mode of community, we just kind of slink out of that. And with this decline in community uh, has come all of these other problems. Uh, in 2018, the UK appointed a loneliness minister. This was after finding out that nearly 20% of the people in the UK identified as lonely. The thing about that is uh, they were only 20%. America is at 35% of people who identify as lonely. Um, statistics have shown that that's led to plenty of other problems. So in 2017, uh, the former U.S. Surgeon uh, General Vivek Murthy, he wrote in an article, and he said, During my years of caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes. It was loneliness. 
And they equate, medically speaking, loneliness is worse than, worse than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It has a greater impact on lifespan than obesity. It's directly tied to the upswing of anxiety and depression that seems to be running rampant today. And we have to ask, why? Why are we dealing with this? Because in some level, right, we're more connected than we've ever been before. Well, we have more ways to communicate than we've ever had before. We have more access to family and friends through social media than we've ever had before. We have better access to help and therapy and assistance. And still, community seems to be falling apart while loneliness runs rampant and nothing seems to be working. Uh, leading anthropologists are looking at this and saying that it's this lonely epidemic that's only gotten worse through COVID. Uh, that this is now the leading cause of what they call tribalism. That what happens is when lonely people start to try and form communities, they, they struggle to actually form healthy communities, and instead they form tribes. And so they contrast that term community and tribe. And so uh, I wrote some of this down. Community is based on mutual love when tribalism is based on mutual hate. Community is about who and what we are for. Tribalism is about what we're against. Community is about generosity and celebration and honor even in the midst of differences. Tribalism is those differences are dangerous and we need to outcast and attack those who are different. And it really feels like the hyper-individualistic culture that started in America, 60s or however long ago you want to say it started, has come full bloom and we're starting to reap the fruit of it. What started as this ecstatic liberation for the individual has created a war of tribe against tribe that is killing the very individual it promised to set free. You guys ever feel this way? That, that this whole world is set up to be me versus you, and the bad guys are out there, and we're the good guys in here. And so everything that you and I need to do is figure out how to best attack and undermine and overthrow and reprimand out there. And so even our churches are starting to be less community-oriented and more tribalized. And if you don't fit into this tribe of church, then go to that tribe or church. And we've started to just totally miss this idea of community. And the question is, has God given us an alternate way a more sincere way of practicing and experiencing community? I think yes, otherwise I wouldn't have written this sermon. So actually, I wouldn't have written this next month of stuff that we're going to be talking about dealing with this idea of community. But this week, really, all I want to do is just some really heavy overview stuff to talk about what community looked like in the eyes of Jesus, what he envisions when he talks about his community, and to kind of layer that over us and to ask the question, is that how we live according to the way of Jesus, or is there some sort of discrepancy there? So let me just kick off Mark chapter 3, very end, verse 31, just through 35, short passage today. His mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. Jesus is in this house. He's teaching. There's this crowd of people around him. His mom and brothers come, and they send this word in, and a crowd was sitting around Jesus, and he told him, look, your mother and brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those sitting in the circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. I get it. It's a real short story. And it's one that a lot of times we overlook because we're just reading more at a large scale. And so what we do is we read a story like this and we think, oh yeah, Jesus considers like everyone his family. That's nice. And we just move on. But, but I think that 
We're used to that because the Bible consistently uses this metaphor of family to talk about the church. Because Jesus' most used word when he talks about God the Father is Father, right? Yeah, that's what he calls God the Father. And then usually the Bible uses uh, the word adophoi, which is Greek for brother or sister or sibling. Uh, And so these are the two most used words in the Bible to talk about followers of God and God the Father. So God, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, this, this whole thing is playing out. And so we've made that kind of normal in our church culture. We've grown accustomed to that. But I think if we could go back to that moment and just sit in that room and, and watch people's faces, you would find shock in the midst of that cultural expression. Because what's going on here is Jesus is doing something insane, something radical. Because Jesus sees his community as family. That's what I want you to understand today, that Jesus sees his community, he sees the church as family. But if you carry that back to first century Jewish context, it pretty quickly changes forms. We think family is nice, colloquial, normal language. But if we go back to first century Judaism, you find that it's downright radical to the culture that Jesus is living in. But to get there, uh, I need to take 10 minutes or so and just kind of nerd out with you about first century uh, Jewish culture. And I know that's exactly, you woke up this morning, I thought, thinking, I really want to learn about first century Jewish culture today at church. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about first century Jewish culture, kind of put that over top of this story, see if we can understand it in its context, and then draw some application out of it all. And what does it mean when Jesus sees his community as family? So bear with me a little bit. We're going to dive into this. Generally speaking, there are two types of societal culture. This is very large topic anthropology type stuff. Uh, But two kind of general speaking types of societies. One is called strong group society. The other is called weak group society. So Jesus grew up in a very strong group society. So here's a definition that we're going to use to work through this. A strong group society Uh, is this. In a strong group society, the person perceives himself or herself as being a member of the group and responsible to the group for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the group and and is free to do what he or she feels is right and necessary only if it is in accord with group norms and only if the action is in the group's best interest. The group has priority over the individual members. That feels weird. Does that feel weird to you guys? It absolutely feels weird to me. It feels borderline oppressive to me, right? Because you have to understand, if you're an American, we, we started our society out of this idea of we don't want that. Hey, King George, leave us alone. We want to do our own thing. That's a very rough uh, summary of the Revolutionary War, but I think it went something along the lines of that, right? Because this is weird to us, but this is the society that Jesus grows up in. We, on the other hand, are a weak group society, A group where the individual has priority over the group. We assume that our personal desires, our personal autonomy, our self-determination is far more important than any group that we identify with. So if the group we identify with challenges that self-identity, we rebel against it, we challenge it, we question it, and we move on to find a different group that will affirm what we believe. What's happened now is to find those groups that affirm those things, it's hard to find it in person a lot of times. So you go on the internet where you find the most ridiculous affirming group echo chambers and you form pseudo communities with that. And welcome to what I think is creating this modern tribalism in our society. 
that if, if I think I'm legitimately a vampire, I can go online and find 50 other people that legitimately think they're vampires. This is real stuff. Like, Google it. It's there. And you can join Facebook pages with other vampires in the world. And welcome to 2022. This is what we live in. Because we're from this weak group society where the individual is primary. But, but to Jesus, this is not how the world works. The world is a strong culture, a strong group culture. Strong group cultures have very clear gender roles. They have very clear family roles. Uh, typically, children don't get to pick their career path. Usually, they don't even get to pick their spouse. That's just kind of always up to the parents of what's going to be best for the family relationships. Uh, that's not to say romance doesn't exist, but that's just to say this is how it worked in Jewish culture. Uh, there's just something in us that doesn't mesh with that idea of thinking. But to Jesus, this was unquestionably the way the world works. Your first and your primary community was your family. And you were obligated you were responsible for and to that family community that you were born into. So in Jewish culture, family was determined and traced through the father's blood lineage, or the father's bloodline. It's called patrilineal, if you're interested in words like that. Um, and if you would go to someone back then and you would say, so tell me about your family, uh, they wouldn't say anything about their spouse. So if someone came to me and they said, hey, Philip, tell me about your family, my first reaction would probably be, well, my wife and I have been married eight years, and that's the family I would first think of. But to an ancient Jewish mind, if you said, hey, tell me about your family, they wouldn't first go to their spouse, they would go to their father, and their father's father, and their father's father above that. This is why genealogies are incredibly common in the Bible. They traced this stuff. It was important to them when we just don't register it to be that way anymore. And so with, with that in mind, your most intimate tie-in is not necessarily your marriage or your spouse. You guys were joined together, and that was great, but your spouse is going to identify their family through their father, and you're going to identify your family through your father. So what most historians go back looking at this can determine is that the closest relationship in ancient Jewish culture was probably not the spouse, but actually was likely the siblings, that you held far more in common with your brothers and your sisters than you did with even your spouse or anyone else for that matter. You guys shared inheritance, you shared lineage, you shared the family farm, you shared property, you shared career paths. Everything built on it was this. And the Bible preaches this all the time, we just don't pick up on it. This is why the story of the prodigal son is so, such a crazy story that, that a son who abandoned his father and brother could be welcomed back into the family. You just don't do that in ancient Jewish culture. This is a huge part of what Jesus grows up in. But again, what is Jesus' typical moniker for those who follow him? Brothers and sisters. I think Jesus is very intentionally calling out the culture around him, and he's attempting to edit it. This is, this is radical. So layer this over the idea of Jesus' own personal life. Biblically, the last time we see any mention of Joseph is when Jesus is 12 years old in the temple, and then Joseph just never shows up anywhere else in Scripture after that. Uh, so a lot of people think that maybe what happened is Joseph actually passed away early in the life of Jesus, that Jesus actually grew up without a dad. And so being the oldest uh, of, of the oldest born and having some younger brothers and sisters, it was Jesus' prerogative and obligation to care for his family. He was responsible to take care of Mary, and then all of a sudden, Jesus turns about 30, 
And at 30-ish years old, Jesus switches gears and he sets off from Nazareth to go and teach and do ministry. And so he's drawing in all of these crowds as he's teaching. And if you go back up and look at verse 20 of Mark chapter 3, you'll see the mindset of this. Jesus entered the house and a crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. And when his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, he's out of his mind. That's pretty funny, right? Jesus' mom's like, Jesus is doing what? He's off teaching at people's houses? He's not even trained to do that. Jesus is supposed to take care of us. He's out of his mind. And so they march in to go get Jesus back to where he's supposed to be according to his obligation role within culture. And they come in, and finally word gets within the inner circle. Hey, Jesus, your mom and brothers are outside, and they're saying that you're not supposed to be doing this. And this is where Jesus drops the bomb in verse 33. Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking around at those sitting in the circle, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. This is, this is radical in this culture. There would have been audible gasps in the crowd around him because, Jesus, you don't say that about your mom and brothers. That's your obligation. That's your community. That's who you are responsible to and for. And now Jesus is saying, actually, that relationship that I have had with them, it's good, but but." I'm offering this for anyone that would choose to do the will of my Father. I'm offering this for anyone that would choose to follow me. This is what my community is going to look like. To Jesus, following him meant giving up the intimate bonds of blood family, which was the bedrock of Jewish culture, for the sake of following him. If you start going through the Gospels and tracking along with this, you'll find that this comes up over and over again. When Jesus calls someone to follow him, the call was both simultaneously to follow Jesus and give up the life you had and embrace the life that he has for you with his disciples. So he would call someone and they would say, well, first, let me go bury my father, which is this Jewish way of saying, hey, I still, my dad's alive. Once he dies and I can get all the affairs in order, then I'll come follow you. And you know what Jesus says to that? Let the dead bury the dead. It's, it's the cost of following me, of joining my community. You have to give up what you once thought was normal for the sake of what I'm telling you is actually sincere and true and normal. See, Jesus doesn't undermine or overhaul the strong group community. He reframes the strong group community. He still expects his followers of the church to be strong group minded. He's just going to put the qualifier not on blood, but on faithfulness to him. And it's just as radical today as it was then. The thing is, we have a difference in why it's radical. See, in our weak group society, our problem lies not with the kind of blood lineage and stuff like that. That's become even more ambiguous in modern day America. But it's with this idea of giving up a weak minded, I shouldn't say weak minded, but a weak structured group society. Because the way that Jesus visualizes his culture always stands in contrast and sometimes in direct conflict with the larger culture. So let me do this. This is where we kind of put a cap on it all. Are you ready to be uncomfortable? You guys, you guys okay being a little uncomfortable this morning? Remember that definition I gave of strong group society earlier? I took the liberty. Actually, I had another pastor do this, and I thought it was good, so I stole it from him. But he took the liberty of, uh, of replacing the word group with the word church in this definition. Just go ahead and hold on for this one. In the church, 
The person perceives himself or herself to be a member of the church and responsible to the church for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded into the church and is free to do what he or she feels is right and necessary only if in accord with the church norms and only if the action is in the church's best interest. The church has priority over the individual member. And I can hear, I knew it was a cult. I knew it was a cult. I want no part of that. And like I feel that because there's something in me too that cries out and says, I don't want that. That's weird. And I would just come in and remind you that church done correctly is not this to me, and it's not even this done to First Baptist Portalis. It is this done to the way and the lordship of Jesus. And so if you put Jesus on that throne, and you say the Christ follower perceives himself as a member among other Christ followers responsible to Christ for his or her actions, we start to kind of mesh with that a little bit more. But I draw all of this out just to say there's something within us that doesn't see eye to eye the way Jesus envisions his community. There's something instilled into our culture, into this American way of life where it's all about me and my wants and my desires. And so what we've done as a church and church movement for the last 20 or 30 years is we said, well, if we can't get people to get to church because they don't like the way, well, then we'll just edit church to be more prone to the way they like it. And so we'll make it more consumer. We'll, we'll do seeker sensitive. And I'm not saying it's bad. Relevance is a necessary thing. If we're just constantly teaching about the Bible but never showing why it applies today, we're not being relevant. It doesn't matter. We, we have to be relevant. Don't hear me saying that relevance isn't important. But what I am saying is there's been so many opportunities and so many stories where churches have went in, they've revamped everything they could to be as relevant as they possibly could, and they've still fallen apart. Because it turns out when your mentality is I'm out for me and me alone to get what I want out of life and nothing else, then you really don't care what the church says about stuff. And this was never Jesus' intention to his followers. Instead, Jesus says, no, these are my brothers and my sisters. This form of commitment that I desire is a commitment that is I am not my own. I die to myself and I follow Jesus. This is the invitation of Jesus' community. It is simultaneously an invitation to disciple him and learn from him and join the others that are following him. We have some, some family friends, uh, Jake and Emily Gray are their names, they're, they're awesome, but we're actually uh, the godparents to their children. Um, so they, their little girls were flower girls in our wedding, the little boy was a ring bearer, but they have two biological uh, a son and a daughter, and then they have an adopted son and a daughter, a daughter from Ethiopia, and then a couple years ago, they adopted a son from, from India. And I was thinking about, uh, I went and stayed with them once, and their kids are amazing, they're awesome, but as kids do, they kind of get in skirmishes sometimes. Uh, and I was thinking about if Ravi, their, their little adopted the son, came to them one day and said, Mom, Dad, I'm really glad that you adopted me, and I want to be your son, but I don't want to be Verity's brother. I think I want the parents without the siblingship. Would they look at that and be like, yeah, we'll figure out a way to make that work? No, absolutely not. They're going to say, when we adopted you, you were adopted into this family, both as a son and as a sibling. I think this is what God is offering to us. 
when he adopts us as sons and daughters of the Most High, he's also adopting us as brothers and sisters in this community together of following him, that I need you and you need me because we can't do this alone. When Jesus invites us, it is simultaneously an invitation to follow him and join others who are following him. And here's my point in all of this. Just a quick overview, and we're going to, the next few weeks, dive into this a little bit more in detail. But what if the American church has become so overgrown with this rampant hyper-individualism that our modern culture has peddled, that, that even in the church we consider it not only normal, but, but good and correct? And what if because of that, what we offer at First Baptist is really no different than what like one of the fitness gyms in town offers. Hey, come join some generally like-minded people and we're going to work on bettering ourselves. That's, that's what we're here for. And if that's really the case, it's no wonder the church is in decline. We're not offering anything different than what the world is offering. Hey, come in. We'll talk a little bit. You can feel better about yourself when you leave. And hopefully you just kind of get your life a little bit more in order. That's it. Congratulations, we're doing the exact same thing everything else is. What if Jesus' intention, what if the model that he offers demands far more commitment? It demands far more energy, far more vulnerability, and far more challenge. But paradoxically, it offers more meaning and more connection and more growth. Because what it does is it helps us to be far more like Jesus. So here's the deal. When we talk about the gospel, we so often talk about how the gospel is the promise we have of eternity with God in heaven. And that's absolutely true. Jesus came. He died on the cross in your place so that if you would believe in him, he would set you free, forgive you of your sins, redeem you, and allow you to spend eternity with God when your life here ends. That's a true element of the gospel. But even more, I shouldn't say more than that, but alongside of that, the other side of that is Jesus is now inviting you to live in the way he lived. And he's saying, whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. Do you want real freedom? You don't find that in politics. You don't find that in your tribe. You don't find that in your own self-identity. You find your freedom by dying to yourself and following me. You find your freedom in living with your brothers and sisters in this community. Because who are my brothers and my sisters? It's not the bloodline. It's whoever does the will of God. And a church is this attempt to say, we all want to do God's will together, and we all need one another in this community, so I will do God's will, and you will do God's will, and we'll come into this point of community. So next week, we're going to talk about this in terms of the Trinity. How does this all work in God's own relationship? But for now, here's where we start. Jesus sees his community as a family. His community is not this building. His community is not this Sunday worship service. His community is not a 501c3 nonprofit status. Church is a family living together in community, committed in submission to the way of Jesus. And is that how you see your role in this community? And you might be saying, absolutely not. I am great coming to church a few times a month, assuming nothing better presents itself like a bed that's really comfortable on a Sunday morning. And I'm down to have some friends that are believers, and I'm down to talk the Bible with them every so often. But that type of commitment, that's, that's just not for me. And if that's you, 
it's fine. No judgment from here. We're glad you're here. You're going to be welcome to be here every single Sunday. The doors are open. We invite you. But I hope you understand. You think that way. We think that way because we have been brainwashed by our hyper-individualistic culture and we've tried to sync that up with Jesus. But we did not get that from Jesus. Maybe over the next few months, the next month as we study this, you need to think about ways that you can better commit yourself to your community of Jesus followers. And if that's here at First Baptist, we'd love that. We would invite you to participate. We have so many things that we need help with, from volunteering in the nursery to doing other events. You can plug in and help us. We would love to have you. And if that's another church, wonderful. Go give that commitment to that church. Love them and be loved by them. But this is Jesus' invitation to you, Jesus' invitation to us. And this is where First Baptist can offer something that no other community in this town can offer. So Miss Pat calls me, and she just, she just lays into me. I can't believe you would do this. Your priorities are not in order. You need to figure this out. She hangs up on me. I freak out. I call my, my head deacon. He says, just wait. It'll be okay. A couple days later, she calls back the church office again. She says, Pastor, and you could, you could hear tears in her throat. She says, I'm so sorry. I got mad, and I wasn't thinking clearly. And then she dropped her code word for me. I baked some chocolate bread. You know what I told her? I said, Pat, you were so rude to me. I don't want any of your chocolate bread. You baked that in anger. and No, I didn't say that. Of course I didn't say that. I said, Miss Pat, I'll be right over. I stopped what I was doing. I took off to her house, and we hugged and prayed, and everything was good until we edited the music style in church a little bit and then came up again. Here's the thing. Before Miss Pat passed away, Haley and I had talked pretty openly with her and vulnerably about our battle with infertility, something that she dealt with in her life. She'd never had kids of her own. And one day she called me with her code line and she said, hey, I I baked you some chocolate bread. Would you bring Haley? So I went and picked up Haley and we came over to her house. There she had a loaf of chocolate bread for us. And she had this knitted blanket that she had folded up and put a bow on top of. She said, I know you guys have been struggling with this, but I still believe that God's one day going to give you this gift. And I knitted this baby blanket for you to remember it. That blanket still sits in our house. Still leads me to pray pretty often. But I'm telling you, I had a relationship with a 90 year old woman that surpassed any in depth relationship I've ever had with a friend, that stretched beyond chemistry, that stretched beyond anything we had in common because we disagreed on about everything from music to Bible translation to whatever it may have been. We had very little common interests. We didn't talk about video games. We didn't talk about politics. We didn't talk about any of that. The only thing we had was Jesus and chocolate bread. And that relationship ran far deeper and far more sincere than almost every friendship I've ever had. Why? Because it met Jesus' vision of community in a way our culture has almost totally lost. What if that's the type of relationships God wants for us here at First Baptist Church? 
Relationships that surpass generational gaps. Relationships that overcome difference in opinion. Relationships that stand above racial or economic divisions. Relationships that don't look to avoid conflict but to persist through conflict. Relationships that shouldn't even be possible in our hyper-individualistic world but yet stand strong because of the existence, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of a Savior who has overcome and invited anyone who wants into this way of life. Do you understand? That's what God wants to do in community. That's what God wants to do in this church. That's what God wants to do in you. But that starts with commitment. It starts with the extension of an invitation. It starts with the ability to overcome conflict in love and forgiveness and grace. It starts with the chance to be open and vulnerable with one another. It starts with this chance to stand as brothers and sisters and children of the king. To say, hey, whatever the world's offered you, our king has offered you something far more intentional and far greater. What if this is the community First Baptist has to offer? Might Portalis look different? Father God, we're going to take some time and just reflect, and I just pray that you would reveal yourself in a way that we get to know our community. God, that we find love and cherish in times together, that we find the, these relationships that surpass every barrier that man would look at and say, you guys can't have that type of relationship. And God, that deep bonds of community would begin to form at First Baptist. God, the, the deep bonds that are already present, that they would just continue to be more and more present. And God, that this society, this town would look at that and say, I don't know what's happening, but something's different at First Baptist. And God, that we might see your community shine through in powerful ways. Thank you for letting us be sons and daughters, but also brothers and sisters. It's in Christ's name we pray.